Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that we have the privilege that we get to be the body of Christ, that we get to be together, that your spirit draws us together as one. God, I pray that each and every one of us as we come together and we center ourselves on your word, God, that we would know that you are with us and that your spirit would soften our hearts that we might receive what it is that you have to share with us today so that we might become more like you when we leave than when we came. Lord Jesus, I pray that my own words are not my own, but God, would they just serve as, as, as further illuminating your word and your wisdom and your truth. Help us to hear it now. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible at home, I want to encourage you to open it up. And statistically speaking, every family has a Bible at home. So open it up and join together. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews. This is in the New Testament, kind of towards the end. And we're going to be in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, beginning at verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless, like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The word of the Lord. Well, today is the third week in a five-part series that we're titling, We Need to Talk. And as I outlined in the first week, these are several different topics that, that are critical for us to be talking about as people who profess faith in Jesus. People who are striving to find our hope in God in a world with so much tension and division and fear. And so the first week, what we talked about was politics and how we often like to pretend how religion and politics don't or shouldn't mix when in reality they do all the time and even in Jesus day he walked the earth himself and interacted with a hyper and divided and corrupt and religiously influenced political environment and so we can learn from his example as we navigate our own today and so that was the first week then last week we we talked about God's big shoulders or lament how how God is always ready to listen to us. He's always ready to listen, to hear our prayers. And it doesn't matter how unfiltered they are, how ugly they are, how broken they are, how angry we might be. God has big shoulders and we can trust him with everything that it is that we go through. And it's not because we've somehow earned the privilege, but precisely because we haven't actually earned anything. God's shoulders are shoulders of grace. And grace is something that the world that we're living in today desperately needs more of. And so today, that's going to be our focus. We're going to talk about grace. And I want to begin by sharing a joke. It's, it's got a kind of a, a serious point, but it's a funny joke. It's about grace. And it's about a man who died and went to heaven, and he went to the pearly gates, and St. Peter was standing there. And St. Peter said to the man, he said, here's how this works. If you want to get into heaven, you need 100 points. 
And so what I want you to do is, is I want you to, to tell me all of the good things that you've done. I'll assign a number of points to them. And once you hit 100 points, bam, you're in. That's easy, right? Sound good? The man said, sure. He thought about it for a minute and said, well, how about this to start with? I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I was always faithful, even in my heart. And you could tell St. Peter was warmed. He said, that is so wonderful. Three points. Three points. That's it? And so he thought for just a minute more. Hmm. Well, how about this? I know this one will get me several points. I attended church every Sunday my entire life. I was baptized in the church. As I was an adult, I went every single week. I supported the church with my tithe. I gave my time, my service, my talent. And St. Peter was warned by that too. He said, that's terrific. One point. One point for going to church? Even all those boring sermons? Oh my goodness. Okay. So he thought a little bit more. Okay, yeah, yeah, the least of these. I remember something about that. Here we go. Here, here this is a good one. I, I started a soup kitchen in my town. And actually for years, I worked at a shelter for homeless veterans. Peter said, that's so wonderful. Hands and feet of Jesus kind of stuff. Two points. Now he's mad. <laughs> He said, two points? How does this work? At this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Peter said, 100 points. Now you can come in. Now, I don't know what's more laughable, the whole point system, which is not in the Bible, by the way, or, or just how saint-like this man really thought he was to get himself into heaven. And in any case, if you're in church this weekend, my guess is you've heard the gospel at least once or twice, and you know that that isn't the way it's supposed to work. Grace is the way. Grace is the only way. It's the way we're saved. It's the way we're invited into the presence of God. It's that through which we're given faith. It's by grace. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Grace, by definition, is God's unmerited favor for us. It's love when we don't deserve to be loved. It's not fair, and it's really good. The world needs it. We can share it, but in order to do that, we need to first receive it ourselves. And in order to be able to receive the grace of God, we need to first let go of our efforts to receive it ourselves, to earn it on our own accord. And that leads us into the scripture reading I read just a few minutes ago. It comes from a letter. And this letter is written to Hebrew Christians in the very first generation of the church. And they were struggling with this whole concept of grace. And the truth is, if you and I were there and we were a Hebrew Christian, we would probably be struggling the same way as well. See, the Hebrews or the Jews, they were God's chosen People. They were the chosen ones that were set apart. These were the ones that, that, that were the, the ones that left Egypt all those generations ago. They, they remembered the Passover. They took the law down from the mountain. They entered the promised land. They fought the battles. They heard the prophets. They experienced the exile. They had been through all of it trying to earn enough points. 
problem was it was never enough because every time they would earn a couple of points, they would lose them. And on and on it went since the very beginning. But in this particular moment in history, it was an exciting time, especially for Hebrew Christians, because out of the Jewish people came this man named Jesus. And he was the king of kings. He lived a life that earned all of the points. He didn't lose a single point, And then he died a death he didn't deserve, rose from the grave, and in the mystery of our faith is now giving away all of the points to all who believe, as it says in the gospel of John chapter 20 and find life in his name. And so at this moment, Hebrews, Hebrews are not Hebrews. Anybody, Jew, Gentile, anybody can have all of the promises of God, all of the things that the Hebrew people had been desperately trying to earn for generations. God's love, forgiveness, acceptance, hope for the future, identity as a child of God, all of those things. There's just one catch. Maybe I wouldn't call it a catch, but for, for the purposes of my sermon, we'll call it a catch. You've got to give up credit for everything that you've earned up to that point. You've got to give up credit for everything that you've earned up to that point. I mean, think about the man in the joke, right? What did he have? Like a couple of points, right? It wasn't very many. Certainly wasn't going to get him into heaven. If you want to receive what Jesus is giving you, you've got to give up what you've tried to earn yourself. And that's hard. It's hard for us and it was hard for these Hebrew Christians who for generations had been trying to earn it themselves. But the author of Hebrews reminds them that in order to, to hold on to, to what you have and what you've earned instead of what Jesus is giving you, it's a fool's game. That if you hold on to what you have and what you've earned and you don't take hold of Jesus, it's a fool's bet. You'll always lose. Jesus is always more. And what we're going to learn beyond that is you're not the only one that loses when you do that, but so do the people around you. And so to illustrate this, the author references a story. And it's a story any Hebrew would have known. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, you've probably heard these names before, too. Jacob and Esau, they're two brothers. They're twins. And we meet them in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25. Now, Esau is the firstborn by a very short period of time. Jacob came out next, and his hand was literally holding on to the heel of his brother. And so the names that they were given were given to them to signify the way in which they were born. Esau means hairy. He was a hairy baby and a hairy man. And then Jacob came out, and the word Jacob means hand around the heel, and later means schemer. And you're going to see how he earns that name as we go. And so Esau is this, this hairy mountain man kind of a guy. He loves the outdoors. He loves to hunt. And like a lot of brothers and sisters, he's polar opposite of his twin brother. Jacob loves to be around the house. He liked to cook. They were polar opposites born in conflict and competition with one another. And so one day Esau comes home. And he's been outside, long day, hunting, doing his thing. He's exhausted, and he's starving. And it says in Genesis 25, verse 29, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. I'm starving. And so Jacob replies and says, Fine, first sell me your birthright. 
sell me your birthright. I mean, all this kind of sounds like two brothers just kind of joking, but the truth is Jacob is serious. He's very serious in this particular moment. And that's a, a big thing. This is, this is no small thing. In this particular moment in history, a birthright, and in some places in the world today, was a very significant place to be in the birth order of a family. If you were the firstborn, you were given the birthright. So Esau had the birthright. And what that meant was that you got a lot more of the inheritance than any of the other siblings would get. And on top of it, you would get to carry on the father's line. You would carry the birthright. It's a significant thing. But see, Jacob and Esau are young in this particular moment. Their father's alive. That moment when any of that's going to matter feels very far off to Esau. And so he says in verse 32, he says, look, brother, I am about to die. I'm starving to death, Esau says. And so what good is a birthright to me? He says, I'm starving. I want to eat. And so I don't care about tomorrow. You ever make a decision right now because of something you just want, you need? Who cares about the consequences? That's how he's feeling. Give me a bowl of soup right now. And so Jacob says, verse 33, fine, swear to me first. I'm serious about the birthright thing. And so he swore on an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil soup. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau gave up his inheritance. He gave his birthright. He gave up his place of honor for one bowl of soup and a piece of bread. Now, Jacob was probably a good cook, but still, right? Like, horrible thing to give up for something else. And if you keep reading, you're going to find that Jacob doesn't forget. God doesn't forget. In, in, a, in a way that, that we, we can't fully comprehend, this is actually something God is working through. He predestined it. He knew that this was going to happen. But Jacob is a schemer. And he's taken this thing that in normal circumstances should be rightfully his brother's. And his brother has given it away freely. And later on, when their father is on his deathbed, that's exactly what's going to happen. Jacob is going to get the birthright and Esau is going to be furious. But there's nothing he can do to change it. The damage is done. And from that point forward, this family goes on to be bitterly divided. And we can relate to being bitterly divided, can't we? We can relate to that. We can relate to that as a country. We can relate to that as families. We can relate to that as neighbors. We can relate to that every single time we turn on social media. Every Sunday for the last several weeks, I've had several conversations with people about how divided their relationships are about how fed up their relation, they are with, with people and with their opinions and even within marriages and between parents and children, we can relate to being bitterly divided. And this is the kind of bitter division that the author of Hebrews is talking to his readers about. And so imagine that he's also talking to us because that's true and urging those who profess Jesus as their hope to, to not just sit back but to become part of the solution in the midst of the divided world that they live in. And so back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It says, make every effort to live in peace peace with everyone and to be holy 
Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, as people who have set their hope on Jesus, the author is saying that they have a responsibility to live at peace with the people around them that are divided. You wouldn't have to say to live at peace if there wasn't a lack of peace. And so you are to live at peace precisely because you are holy. And what it means to be holy is it means to be set apart. And a lot of times we hear holy and we think of holy roller, but it's actually the opposite in this particular context. To be holy, we would never be able to be holy. We would never be able to be set apart, but because of what Jesus has done by his grace, which you're going to see in a second, because of what he has done for us, he has set us apart. And because he has set us apart, we represent him in the midst of struggles. And these people are in the midst of such divided struggles in this world that they are being called to be an example in the midst of it so that when people see their example, they will not see them, but they'll see the Prince of Peace they represent, which is Jesus. What Jesus said, right, Matthew 5? He said, he said let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven that they will see the way you're interacting in the division in your life, and they will see God. Paul said the same thing in a different way. Romans 12, he said, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, whenever I read passages like this, I often will hear someone say to me after the service, Does that mean that we're just all called to be these quiet, kind of monk-like, meditative people in the midst of a divided world? Are we called just to to sit back and and, and meditate and pray and do nothing? And, and, And the truth is no. That's actually not at all what these passages are talking about. Sometimes it actually means that we need to stand up for something. Sometimes it means that you actually have to get out and fight for justice, not because you're the one who's lacking peace, but you go and fight for those who don't yet have peace. But if you're out fighting for those things, the motives that undergird everything you say and do, whether you're living in your own peace or you're fighting for the peace of somebody who doesn't have it, the undergirding motives of, of what you do and why you do it is never that you are somehow better than somebody else. That you are not somehow better than somebody else. That's not what it is. If anything, that kind of attitude is what's tearing us apart. It's not that people are fighting for what they believe is right. It's this attitude that we believe that by being right, we are somehow better. See, the truth is our world is really divided and broken now. And we have to live in the midst of that. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish I could be the kind of preacher that would, that would look out and, and say to you, it's okay, it's all good, let go and let God... I mean, it will be okay, and it will be all good, but to let go and let God, I'm sorry, it sounds like a wonderful bumper sticker, but that's not at all what God calls us to do. God doesn't call us to let go. He doesn't call us to let go. He calls us to be empowered by grace, to grab, hold, and be part of the solution. But that begins by realizing that if we think our perspectives and opinions are right, if we believe that in the core of our bones, we are still just like everybody else. We need grace too. And so we go out 
And we fight for peace. But we fight for peace because Hebrews 12.15 says that we are called to it so that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. We live at peace and fight for peace. And we do so because the divisions that we are experiencing today are going to have a lasting impact tomorrow. And we want to learn from the example of those who have made poor choices in the other direction. Examples like Esau, who continues in Hebrews 12, see to it that nobody is sexually immoral, sensual, turning to the things of this moment, that nobody is godless like Esau, who for a single meal, it's ridiculous, it's absurd, it's obnoxious, for one single meal sold his entire inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Friends, divisions today, divisions today, just like Esau being hungry and selling his birthright years before he would ever use it, the divisions that we find ourselves in the midst of today, how we handle them, the words that come out of our mouths, the decisions that we're making in this particular moment have the potential to sow a bitter root that will cause trouble and defile many. It will cause issues with our witness as people who say that we are following a God of grace, but it will also break your relationships with others that far outlasts the conflicts that we're in today. And so where's the hope? Well, the hope is that if we can really turn to Jesus as the people of grace that we're called to be, knowing that that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God just like anybody else, that we can look out at the world and all of its brokenness and remember what Paul said in Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, where sin increased, grace increases all the more. Where sin increased, grace increases all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The hope is that while the divisions may remain in this moment, grace will prevail forever. And it's grace that brings peace. And it begins as we remember that you and I need grace as much as anyone and everyone else. And so let's ask God to impose that on our hearts right now as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came by grace, that you came down from heaven, that you walked the earth, that you lived the perfect life, that you earned all the points, the points that we so desperately needed because since the very beginning of human history, we could not ever earn them ourselves, and you knew it. And so, Jesus, you came. Father, you sent your your one and only son to live a perfect life, to die the perfect death, to rise again and to invite us in to his arms and your family to be adopted as sons and daughters by grace and faith. What that passage reminds us and what I'm so grateful for is that we can't even step out in faith without your grace 
We can't even call upon your name without your grace. We can't have any confidence or assurance of anything without your grace and your mercy. And because of what you've done, it's been given to us. And so, God, we repent of all of the times that we have striven to earn it on our own. We know that if it worked like the joke and we showed up at the pearly gates, we would never have enough points. That if we're blessed to be married for 50 years, it is by your grace that we have entered into a relationship like that. That if we come before you and worship our entire lives, it is by grace that if we, if we give an offering, it is by your grace that we have the resources to give it. If we serve you in the least of these, it is by your grace. Because we're told that by serving the least of these, it's like serving you. And so God, I pray. I pray forgiveness for the moments in my heart that I have thought and these moments have been too often because I believe a certain thing that I am somehow greater or better than somebody else. But God, I am nothing by myself and I am everything because of you. And so help us to let go of ourselves so that we might take hold of you and your love and your grace, not just so that we might find peace, but so that we might be examples of your peace to others. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.